0: The Iowa caucuses have at last arrived and many of you are wondering, what is a caucus and how does it work? The word caucus comes from the ancient Greek word kaukos, meaning to gather together in a place that will one day be called Iowa to do whatever is necessary to preserve your farm subsidies. Republican caucuses and Democrat caucuses are each run somewhat differently. In Republican caucuses, you see the full majesty of American democracy on display. Ordinary people come from their farms, shops, and houses and brave the wind and weather to congregate in school auditoriums, meeting halls, and churches where they will exercise their right to select the worst person imaginable to destroy the republic forever. In Democratic caucuses, the worst person imaginable is also selected, but the process is somewhat different. Here the citizens gather in groups according to whom they support. Citizens who favor Hillary Clinton, for instance, will all stand in one section of the room, where they will form a circle and bring dead Democrats back to life so that they can vote repeatedly in the general election. The reanimated Democrat corpses will then spread through the countryside, handing out free Christmas turkeys to living voters in exchange for their immortal souls. Those Democrats who favor Bernie Sanders will gather into what are technically called rampaging mobs and storm the homes of those more successful than themselves in order to loot their property and distribute it among themselves. Because that's justice. If a Democrat finds that he has gathered in a group that represents less than 15% of those present, then he has voted for Martin O'Malley and is forced to live with this fact for the rest of his life. Although the caucus process can at times seem chaotic, it is remarkable how often it produces two candidates who cast the parties they represent into eternal debasement and shame. A debasement and shame that come the general election will become the birthright of each and every American. And now, our national anthem. The country's in the very best of hands, the best of hands, the best of hands. The Treasury says the national debt is climbing to the sky, and government expenditures have never been so high. It makes a fellow get a gleam of pride within his eye to see how our economy expands. The country's in the very best of hands. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. At last, somebody's going to vote on something. There'll be like an actual an actual piece of information coming our way. we we'll just be talking and talking and talking, but not yet, not yet. So we're not going to talk about Iowa all day. We'll just talk, I think, first of all, I want to, not first of all, but eventually, I want to talk about a movie I saw over the weekend that is up. another movie that's up for an Oscar, which did not make my Stuff I Like list, because anybody can win an Oscar, but to make the Stuff I Like list is is difficult. Last last week, The Revenant actually made the list, which was shocking. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is still trying to get over it. But this is an Oscar-nominated film that didn't make it, and we will start Valentine's Day Stuff I Like, in which I will try and name. This is not going to be easy. I've got two weeks of love stories that you might enjoy even if you happen to be, to identify as a heterosexual man. So that's going to be, it's not an easy thing to do, but I will try. But first, we do have to talk about Iowa. I want to talk about, what I want to talk about, since we don't know anything, is hopes and fears. What what we're afraid will happen, what we hope might happen. Because I had a really interesting experience over the weekend, which was that just about everybody I know who is involved in politics on the right contacted me and had plunged into despair. I mean, I got one, I got one email that was just headlined "We're doomed." That <laughs> you know, was the headline. It's like thanks for writing. You know, please call back and try again. So, you know, we want to. I just want to figure out what it was because even I, I have to say, went into a period for about two or three hours where I regaled my wife with all the things that really made me sorrowful about this election already before there was any information coming in. But just so we have some facts, we did send, the Daily Wire did give us some money and we sent some reporters down and we did an exclusive interview with uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager. Here's just a clip. It's It's alive, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive, in the name of God. So so then we we sent the same reporter to interview. He got an exclusive conversation between Ted Cruz and his campaign manager. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. All right, so, so things are just looking a little grim. Is what what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get across? You know, all the polls they're putting they're putting Donald Trump ahead of Cruz and Rubio, and the polls are also leaning toward Hillary. It's a little bit more unclear on the left. And when all these people call me up or email me over the weekend, they say, we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed. I think, well, what am I? Are we doomed? I mean, of course we're doomed. We're doomed from the minute we're born. We're all doomed. I mean, every, everything is doomed, but that's not the point. The point is, are we doomed today? Because today is the only thing we've got. And Is is this election going to become a truly horrific experience, an American experience, a true turning point for the worse? So why, why did this feeling suddenly affect everybody? What was this mist of despair? Because we don't have any inf- information. And the polls, yeah, the polls look bad, but the polls are, in Iowa specifically are frequently completely off the mark. And I've talked before about how the sense that we're doomed is a way of heading off suspense and fear. Like So if you are doomed, then, if you're, then you can't be disappointed. If you have no hope, you can't be disappointed. That's like an old superstition, because the fact is, if you have no hope, you deprive yourself of the pleasure of hope, and you'll still be disappointed if bad things happen. I mean, it really is true. I know people who live their entire lives this way, afraid to hope for anything because they're afraid they'll be disappointed. And when bad things happen, they're still just as disappointed, but they never had the pleasure of hoping that things might go well or thinking that they might. And it also is a hedge against helplessness in the sense that if you're doomed you don't have to do anything about it i mean i think that's why saint paul included hope among the virtues because if you have hope then you actually have a responsibility to go out and do something and now we've done whatever we can do we've done in iowa they're going to vote and so we're, we're more or less helpless so to say we're doomed is another way to say there's nothing more that we can do but i think there's something else especially affecting conservatives which is this The sense of being doomed is sometimes an expression of the fact that things have already changed to the point that you no longer recognize them and are unhappy with the way they are. And I think a lot of us have seen the moral consensus of what used to be the moral world has collapsed. It started to collapse in the 1960s, but it didn't really fully collapse until the 80s. Uh, You know, and then the, the 90s, and then, you know, we just kept seeing it go, and I remember when Clinton was first caught by the Drudge Report having this affair with Monica Lewinsky, one of the anchors, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Peter Jennings, said, if this is true, if he was having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, he will have to resign within three days. And it was like, yeah, no, that was, that was another world that we used to live in. Now, it, you know, he could have been having an affair with the vice president, and he wouldn't have had to, you know, resign within three days. Because everything has changed, and there are some people who have a hard time dealing with this. The homosexuality that used to be, everybody, including homosexuals, used to think that homosexuality was wrong. You know, even gay people used to think that, that being gay was wrong. And, and once that consensus there's, collapses, there's nothing the government can do without becoming oppressive. If everybody thinks that being gay is wrong and you have a a law on the books that's anti-sodomy, nobody really cares. Because, first of all, they never use the law. They never kick down anybody's door and drag them out into the... It's just an expression of community values. It's, It's an expression, a government expression, of what we all already think. And so people get hysterical when they overturn sodomy laws, say. But that's really also an expression of the fact that that consensus has collapsed. It's wrong when the Supreme Court does it and announces, declares that the consensus has collapsed. But frequently, for instance, with Roe v. Wade, the consensus had not collapsed and still hasn't. The idea that abortion is wrong is still holding pretty steady, about 50-50, I think. But with gays, the consensus had collapsed. Nobody wanted to see them arrested. Nobody thought the government should have the right to kick down their doors and stop them from doing whatever they wanted to do. And so the government, when the moral consensus collapses, the government can't do anything about it without becoming oppressive. And so you're stuck living in this world where your only option is to live in opposition to society. So on every television show and every movie, they're living one way and they're, you know, having a celebration. And you're looking around you and you think, gee, the people who are actually living the way people behave in the movies are having miserable lives. But... Me, you know, in my stodgy old fashioned 1950s morality, I look like a fool. You know, I look dumb because now everybody's making fun of me and snickering at me, and I'm the old guy. And it's like, so it's, it's a very difficult way to live. When people say we're doomed, what they really mean a lot of times is that. The world has changed in ways that they can't accept. Now, I never had a problem with this, because I'm an artist, and so I live, remember the Island of Misfit Toys? Did I bring in the Island of Misfit Toys? Play. here's the island. This is from, what is it, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I think. All right, here's the Island of Misfit Toys. I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. I just had to play that. But, you know, when you're when you're an artist, you live on the island of misfit toys. Everybody you know is living this really weird, strange life. And the fact that I happen to be a conservative and live a certain way and a Christian and live a certain way is, is I'm really the anomalous one. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that because I see how their lives are and I see how my life is. But I don't want to spend any of my time judging them or passing, you know, or telling them they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. So I, I can see all the changes that have happened since I was a kid, I see them as good and bad. I'm sorry that that women have lost the sense of what virtue means. I really am. I think it's bad for them. I think it, it's bad for society in general and all that. But I'm glad that women are free to do whatever they want. You know, I'm glad that they can make their own choices. I think there are good choices and bad choices, but I'm glad they can make them without like society telling them what they can and can't do. I, I like living in a freer world, even though I think that certain choices should be made over others, you know, but I'm glad that each person has that right. So I see good things and bad things. I, you know, I hate living in a world that's awash in pornography, but I love living in a world that's awash in information, right? But now, so I've never had this problem. I can always see how things can go in a good way. I can see how we can go forward into a new, a, a new moral world as women start to discover that they're really they've really been sold a bill of goods by feminists. I think they may change, and then we'll have a world in which people choose to do the right thing, which will be a better world than a world in which people are forced to do the right thing. So I can see things going forward in a good way. This election, however, is really already, already has been very dispiriting. It's dispiriting to see a guy like Donald Trump, this vulgarian left-winger who just the other day is still supporting you know, government health care, it, it's dispiriting to see him like a Pied Piper calling people who once identified as conservatives who are my friends and people I respected and and read and, and looked to for conservative ideas. It, it's dispiriting to see them confusing their anger with principle. It's, it's to see them confusing payback with victory. I mean, payback is not, revenge is not victory. I have two entirely different things, and we have a chance to win a victory here. We have good candidates. We have guys like Cruz and Rubio who are good candidates, and to see people going after this Bulgarian Trump is very, very dispiriting. Already, it's already dispiriting that this reality TV guy who cheats on his wives, who seats his mistress and his wife at the same table just for a joke and all this stuff. You know, to, to think that who who gives people the finger and calls people the names that he, the people could think like, yeah, I, I think he might be president. He might make a good president. You know, it just makes you want to bang your head against the wall. But you know, I've wasted a lot of breath on Trump and I've talked about Trump. The thing that bothers me here is the other side. It bothers me just as much. What's happening on to the Democrats. I know a lot of Democrats. I talk to Democrats all the time. And Hillary Clinton, I mean, obviously we just had this new wrinkle in this scandal where they just found that some of the emails on her server were indeed so top secret that they put people's lives at risk and so top secret that they can't even, they're not even going to release them. They've asked for delays. And they released this information on a Friday, which is called a dump in the news business because they know that nobody's paying attention to the news over the weekend. Plus, it's the Friday before the Iowa caucuses, so they know it's going to just disappear. And I know, I know for a fact that Democrats don't care about this. She's lied about what she did. She did something that would get anybody else arrested. She lied, she's lied about it, doesn't listen to this. You know, I've I've made the joke that the most condensed piece of dishonesty in this election cycle is Jeb exclamation mark. You know, exclamation point, exclamation point! It's like just three letters and a quote and a and a punctuation mark with more dishonesty packed into it. The Jeb exclamation point! However, listen to the New York Times, a former newspaper, use two paragraphs to lie about an entire situation. It's two paragraphs, right? Here is their lead on today's Iowa caucuses: <clears throat> a fact indifferent, vulgarity spouting, tie hawking, Democratic donating former reality TV star is positioned to win the Iowa caucuses, crashing a party to which Republican leaders wish he had never been invited. And across the aisle, a septuagenarian socialist Brooklynite who speaks of revolution and only recently warmed to combs, is threatening the coronation of the former first lady and secretary of state once considered the surest non-incumbent bet for a nomination in modern times. So Donald Trump is a fact-indifferent vulgarity spouting, tie-hawking, Democratic-doning donating former reality TV star, and Hillary Clinton is the former first lady and secretary of state. Hillary Clinton also, <laughs> okay, I mean, it's not as condensed as the exclamation point after Jeb, but it's pretty condensed lying, and the guy who wrote that probably thinks that that was some kind of, <laughs> that he was doing an honest day's work. He was lying without even knowing he was lying. Take a look at this. Last week, I played some of that CNN town hall with Chris Cuomo's son of one of the, great Democrat families throwing these hardball questions, and I showed some of the ones he gave Bernie Sanders. Listen to a little collection, this is from the Media Research Center, listen to a little collection of the questions he asked Hillary Clinton that she was asked at this last time that people could see her questioned by the press. These are the questions she was asked. Interesting weekend for you. Boston Globe, endorsement. Right. Des Moines Register, endorsement. Maybe the best accolade, President Obama. Gave an interview, talked about this race, seemed to get more into it than he has in the past. He said, you're, quote, wicked smart, <laughs> knows every policy inside and out. Sounds like an endorsement to me. <laughs> He says also in there, you get undue criticism. And he says, and by the way, I have some regrets about my campaign and some of the things we did. Was that surprising? When you were elected the next president of the United States, what will you say to Republican voters? That I want to be the president for everyone. And I believe that is exactly what any president should do. You know, Chris Cuomo's... Chris Cuomo's father said one of the smartest things. Well, he said many, many smart things about politics. But you might remember, he said, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. (laughs) <laughs> how does she handle the high heat, huh? Yeah. You know, <laughs> how does she how does she take the grilling, boy? And she stays cool throughout. It's with those questions hammering at her. It's amazing that Hillary Clinton. You know, it, it's this corruption. It, it it bothers me. It bothers me that our side, after seven years of a a president who is in his own way a Bulgarian, our president. He's certainly a small-minded, pinch-hearted, mean-spirited little man who doesn't understand, has no gratitude for the country that made him what he is, and who attacks people who disagree with him savagely and illegally, as far as I'm concerned, and somehow we on the right, see I thought, my idea on the right was always that we were the good guys, that we had to fight, it's hard to be the good guy, it's hard to be the good guys, that we had to fight a little bit differently, It bothers me, yes, that we have essentially put Barack Obama, Trump, against Barack Obama, you know, to strike back against Barack Obama. We've come up with our own Obama. But it also bothers me that my friends on the left, and after all, I'll argue principle with the guys on the left. I'll argue with a Bernie Sanders. He strikes me as an honest man. I'll argue principle, that principle all day long, and I'm not ashamed to associate with people who would vote for Bernie Sanders, saying, no, I think a socialist America would be a better America. That is, that's a, an argument we can have. That's an argument on principle. But to close your eyes, to close your eyes to the dishonesty of this woman, the corruption of this woman, the entitlement of this woman, is to corrupt yourself. It's to corrupt yourself and to co- close your eyes as they have done. Because by the way, some of these new emails they found came from Obama. Some of these top secret emails came from Obama, who claimed that he didn't know that she had this email server. He went on TV repeatedly and said, "I found out about it when the, it was on the news." I turned on the news one day, and so what address was he using to email her? It wasn't a government address when he was sending these top secret documents. What you know, what, what? what, what? So he's a liar too. But that's okay. The press isn't reporting that. Hillary Clinton is just the former first lady and the former secretary of state. Okay, now, so that's my fear is that we're going to wind up. Obviously, my fear is that we're going to wind up with Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. This, you know, corrupt harridan versus this Bulgarian troglodyte. You know, and I and I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to support a Republican candidate who is not a Republican candidate, who's not, you know, I'm, I'm willing to support a Republican candidate who's to the left of me. I have no problem with that. I understand I'm i am far right. I'm not where most of the people in the country are. That doesn't mean my candidate has to win. I, I get it. A guy like Rubio, who's more in the center, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'll, there'll be days when I gnash my teeth, but so what? That's the—that's politics. That's the world. I'm not an idealist. These, these are the things that happen. But no, no, I'm not supporting a guy who can't, speak an English sentence without insulting somebody who makes personal attacks on people and who's a leftist. I'm not going to support that just so I can say I'm a Republican. It's not going to happen. So that's my fear. What are my hopes? Well, look, my hope, first of all, I hope Bernie Sanders wins in Iowa. I hope Bernie Sanders causes so much trouble for Hillary Clinton that it becomes the better part of valor for the Democrats to indict her. In other words, if she becomes such a bad candidate, I think justice may be done in that strange way God has of doing justice through our own corruption. And that would be make me laugh and be delighted. I would be delighted to see justice done, Hillary Clinton. On our side, you know, there's reason to hope for a Cruz victory here, certainly. Cruz, interestingly enough, has been campaigning against Rubio these last three days, which indicates to me that in spite of what the polls say, he's hearing that Rubio is his main challenge. Cruz famously has something like between 11,000 and 14,000 volunteers working for him in Iowa, which means if each one of them brings somewhere between six and eight people to the polls, if each one of them just brings a a, a jitney of, of people to the polls, he'll win. There's also been no... When Obama won, there was a sudden rush to register before Obama's election, which meant he had brought new people into the process. There's been nothing like that on the Republican side. There has not been a rush for Republicans to register, which indicates to me that if Trump's fan base is new voters who've never been to caucuses before, they're not going to come to caucuses now. And remember, it's cold (laughs) in Iowa. You've got to drive someplace. It's not like, you know, you actually have to drive someplace and go somewhere and it takes hours to do. It's possible that his support, as passionate as it is, is the support of fans, not of voters. And so I could really see I can see a Rubio victory which would be a big surprise. And remember the last two presidential elections, the Iowa polls right before the final Iowa polls were something like between 5 and 8% out. So I could see a Rubio victory, but even a Cruz victory I think would be a very good thing, especially if Rubio made a good showing, it would mean that New Hampshire was wide open and all the disaster scenarios, you know, had not occurred and we had dodged a bullet and returned to where we are, in which case, then the question becomes, then the question becomes, if we dodge this Trump bullet, if we actually have a candidate who can reasonably call a Republican, what did we learn? What did Trump teach us? He certainly taught us that political correctness is a dead letter. He certainly taught us that you can, you know, violate the boundaries of the press and, and fight back against the press and fight back against this Democrat-imposed political correctness and win. You know, he certainly thought that honesty might really help the Republicans. It would be a new thing for them, you know? <laughs> it's like, hmm, honest, honesty, what a concept. So there's a lot to learn. If A lot of good can come out of, a Trump, out of a Trump loss. And so that's why I don't feel like we're doomed. I feel like we're heading into the rapids, and we're about to find out just how doomed and how bad the rapids are going to be. You know, this brings me to this movie, and it, it's, it is connected. I saw Bridge of Spies over the weekend, which is the Spielberg picture with Tom Hanks and it's about a lawyer a true story about a lawyer in the 50s who is called upon to defend a soviet spy and he ends up in a trying to make a trade with the soviet spy for an american spy and they come to this honest lawyer and it's a very old fashioned story they come to this honest lawyer and they say you know this guy deserves a defense, so we want you to give him the defense. But once he does give them the defense, because he's an honest man, this is Tom Hanks, once he does give him the defense, they want him to stop. He takes it too seriously. And so there's this key scene, and this is kind of the theme of the movie right here. The spy is played, by the way, by that really terrific actor, uh, Mark Rylance, who was um, uh, Cromwell. In Wolf Hall on PBS. So he's a really good actor. So he plays this kind of Russian spy who's very likable and very has a lot of integrity. He just happens to be fighting for the bad guys. And there's no question, by the way, that the Russian, the Soviets are the bad guys. And this Spielberg's very clear about this. But he also believes that we should stick to our American values and defend this guy. And so the CIA comes to Tom Hanks' his lawyer character and says, asks him to violate attorney privilege, attorney client privilege. And Hanks refuses, and this is the scene where he refuses the theme of the movie. Don't go Boy Scout on me. We don't have a rule book here. You're Agent Hoffman, yeah? Yeah. German extraction. Yeah, so? My name's Donovan, Irish, both sides, mother and father. I'm Irish, you're German, but what makes us both Americans? Just one thing one 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 the rule book we call it the constitution and we agree to the rules and that's what makes us americans it's all that makes us americans so don't tell me there's no rule book and don't nod at me like that you son of a bitch. <laughs> it's a excellent excellent scene and it states the theme of the movie that he's that like just like john adams defended the british soldiers in the boston massacre he's going to defend this russian spy Steven Spielberg is one of Clinton, Hillary Clinton's biggest donors. Where does the rule book go then? Where does the rule book go when he supports a president who uses the IRS against his opponents? Where does the rule book go when he supports a president who uses executive orders instead of legislation to to do what he wants? It's a very, very, it's what is wrong with the movie. I'm not just talking about Spielberg's hypocrisy. I'm talking about what's wrong with the movie. Spielberg is essentially lecturing us about how we should treat the Islamists. That's what the movie is really about. He's saying, you know, even though we are fighting this battle, we fought this battle against the Soviet Union and we stuck to our principles. Let me remind him that the Democrats completely absconded on this battle after the 60s and they completely left this battle behind. It was left for Ronald Reagan to win it while the Democrats screamed that he was being mean. Okay, that's just the truth. The Democrats were out of this battle by the time it ended and it was Reagan who took us to victory over, in the Cold War over a very, very evil enemy. Now we're fighting an evil enemy again, and Spielberg is saying, but let's not abandon our principles. But, you know, there does come a point when you have to fight with everything you've got, and principle has to be put aside for a moment. You don't want to destroy yourself. It's like the Dark Knight, you know, somehow sometimes you have to do the extra thing. Spielberg made a movie called, uh, well, he made Saving Private Ryan, in which at one point they let a Nazi go, out of, a Nazi soldier go out of mercy, and he comes back and kills them. And in that moment, Spielberg understands that sometimes mercy is the wrong value to uphold. Then he made this picture Munich, in which he basically scolded the Mossad for killing the people who had killed the Jewish athletes at the Munich Olympics, and the Mossad, and they, he said, oh these people who did this killing, they destroyed their lives, they hardened themselves and all this. And the Mossad said, no, no, we did, we did the right thing, you know. Be, sometimes being a tough guy, sometimes breaking the rules, sometimes doing what it takes to win may be alienating to a filmmaker in Hollywood, a millionaire, billionaire filmmaker in Hollywood, but it's not alienating to the people who have to do that work. Bridge of Spies is a phony movie at some level. And because of that, because it's a phony movie, despite the fact that I agree with its basic theme, it's it's a little bit slack. It has no tension. It has no excitement. There are no real, I mean, Tom Hanks, as you saw in that scene, is just completely right. There's no other argument. At no point does the CIA guy say, hey, these people are evil and they're trying to destroy us. The CIA guy has no argument. He's just this nodding fool. And when he calls him an SOB, he kind of agree with him. It's a completely simplistic movie. And that's the reason it doesn't work. And that's the reason it doesn't make stuff I like and won't win the Oscars either, as far as I'm concerned. All right stuff I like, Valentine's stuff I like, you know, this is really hard. It is really hard to come up with two weeks worth of love stories and movies and anything I can think of. Uh, Songs are obviously easy, but but love stories are not so easy, that everybody would think this is a really great story. And the reason for this, I thought about this a lot, and the reason for this is that, you know, romantic love, erotic love, is not really that interesting. It's kind of like death. It happens because it happens. I mean, People always think of Romeo and Juliet as a great love story. But if you read Romeo and Juliet closely, Shakespeare's making fun of them, of, of Romeo especially. Romeo falls Romeo is just Randy. He falls in love with any girl he sees, and he happens to fall in love in Juliet, and he brings the house down. You know, so he, he, Shakespeare's basically saying this is a basic human emotion. it's It's not a story if somebody just dies. It's not a story if somebody gets sick and dies. It's only a story if people die because of their own character. That's a tragedy or if their death reveals their character. That's a drama. In the same way, it's not an interesting story if some two people fall in love. That's not an interesting story. It's only an interesting story when the love story reflects on something bigger than itself. There's a, there's a great line in Shakespeare in As You Like It, Rosalind is making fun of people who tell love stories in which men die for love. And she says, men have died from time to time, and worms have eaten them, but not for love. And she's saying that it's not, you know, love. Love is a profound experience, but it's it's not a prof- it doesn't have profound meaning unless it reveals more than itself. So I've looked for stories that are revealing about more than love, that are actual love stories, that that's the plot of the story is that people fall in love, but that reveal more about the world and about the culture. The first one, and I know you've never read this. I I, I can almost guarantee that there is nobody listening who has read this story, and it is a great, great story. One of the greatest love stories I ever read. You can get it free online, and it's short. It's a short story. It's called The Apple Tree, and it's by John Galsworthy, Nobel Prize winning writer, wrote the Foresight Saga. If you watch uh, PBS, that was a big show on PBS. He wrote this very short story called The Apple Tree. Great love story very touching, very moving. Um, it was made into a film called something like a, a Summer Story, but the film is really nothing at all. But look it up. You'll like it. It's really good, great Valentine's Day fair. And uh, as I say, you can get it for free online or you can get it on your Kindle. Just download it and it's, it's, uh, it costs nothing. That's it. Tomorrow we'll have more information. We'll have actual information. I hope some results. We'll find out where we're going up, down, you know, roundabout. It's going to be interesting. It's going to, you know, as, as they say in the movies, buckle up. It's going to be, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night. This is Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Come back again tomorrow, and we'll talk about what's going on.